0: Today, um, if you have a Bible, please turn to Mark chapter 9. We're going to be in Mark chapter 9, and um, not to sound too intense, but tomorrow um, we are calling a church-wide fast for a week. And uh, fasting is a discipline in our rule of life, and I taught on it specifically during our Future Church series. And as a church, one of the ways that we practice um, the way of Jesus collectively is with a weekly fast. You can choose a weekly fast or we kind of um, have a day set aside on Wednesday as a church that we fast. You can join that fast or, or weave that into your discipline throughout the week. Um, but we practice, this is one of our, our ways that we practice the way of Jesus, we do a weekly fast. But to, today, this week, starting tomorrow, Monday to Friday, we're going we're gonna to turn that up to 11 as a church. Um, as a way of marking our dependence on God, and as a response to the sacredness of this moment, the fact that we're entering into a new building that we uh, we as a church steward we own but we steward. It's probably a better way of saying that we steward it together, and what that looks like practically how we enter into a church-wide fast, that's what I'll get into in today's sermon. So if you have a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 9, verse 14. I'll read down to verse 29. I'm preaching on verse 29, but I'll read this because it's important to get the whole context of what's happening. Uh, Verse 14, Um, right before this, Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration with his disciples where his all his clothes gleamed white, and Moses and Eliza show up, and they're all chatting, talking shop, and the disciples, Peter, James, and John are with them, and they're tripping. They're literally like, oh my gosh, we're here, we get to experience this, and Peter opens his big mouth and says something super silly and stupid, and then God the Father chimes in and is like, just listen, don't talk, just listen. Um, really cool story, you could read that on your own time. But then they're coming down the mountain, off the mountain, and this is what we encounter in verse 14. When they came to the other disciples from the Mount of Transfiguration, they saw a large crowd around them and teachers of the law, which were the religious leaders of that day, arguing with the disciples. So the disciples and the teachers of the law were arguing. As soon as all the people uh, saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? Jesus asked. A man in the crowd answered, teacher, teacher, So they brought him, and when the spirit, this evil spirit, saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, the dad said, it has often thrown him to the fire or the water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, Jesus said, if I can do anything, if I can, Everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw the crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter in him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and then came out. And the boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, He's dead. He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. Now, after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive out this demonic power? Why couldn't we drive this thing out? And Jesus replied, This kind can only come out by prayer. And if you notice a little footnote there, it says, in some manuscripts say, and fasting. And you might have a translation that says that this kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. This is God's word um, and the words of Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would fill me with your spirit, that uh, my mind and my heart would be aligned with your mind and your heart for this congregation today and going into this week. I pray that we would learn maybe something, that you would convict us of something That might be misaligned in our belief, uh, misaligned in what we believe about our church or about the city or, most importantly and above all, about you and the way that you want to work through us. As we are your disciples, Lord, and oftentimes we too feel stuck, that we're ineffective, that we can't bring about the results that we feel like we're empowered to do, would you teach us, Lord, and lead us, especially as we go into this week? In the powerful name of Christ, we pray. Amen. I want to observe a few things from this text, specifically as it pertains to moving into a week of fasting and prayer. And I'd like us to see three things in this text this morning. I'd like us to see a warning, and an invitation, and a question. A warning, which is, I think, the point of this text, but an invitation as well, which is how the text ends. And then I want to end with a question or answering a question that I think Jesus asks here. First, let's talk about a warning from this text. This is one of my favorite stories in all of Mark. I have oftentimes, since day zero of this church, have meditated on that last line in uh, this, te- this narrative where Jesus says, this kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. This kind. Actually, this text is what led us to all the prayer tours that we did before the church started. This kind um, and we'll do a little bit of unpacking of that during this next week. But I, I have often thought of this text. I've often, over the last several, 10 plus years, meditated on this text. I mean, is this story about demons and how to release people from the power of the demonic? Or is this story a little bit more about faith and uh, the faith it takes to move mountains, the faith it takes to cast out demons, the faith it takes to be successful and fruitful in ministry, or how faith works? Or is this story about a father... And a son and the links parents will go to to bring healing and and relief to their children. What is the story really about? And in a certain way, the story is about all of it. It's about all of the above. But mainly, it's in the working and fleshing out of those storylines that the main point of the story actually emerges. In our narrative, Jesus is coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, as I, as I said before I read the text. He's coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, this glorious moment where some scholars and commentators said at that very moment he could have averted the cross and just shot right up to heaven if he wanted to. It was that. It was his. The, 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 the veil of deity was, was, was thin, and the glory that was, that was kind of veiled in his flesh kind of shone through. And, and actually, Peter uh, tripped out so much that he said... Jesus, um, could, could we build you three little huts here, three little places to dwell? And that sounds silly, but if you know Old Testament theology, he was literally saying, should we build you a tabernacle to withhold your glory? Because that's kind of how they concealed the glory of God in the Old Testament was with the tabernacle, right? So Peter is kind of saying something like that, like, oh, we should build three temples so you guys can live in these temples and shield your glory because it's becoming too powerful for us, right? So Jesus is coming down from this mount of transfiguration, and the crowds are all gathered, um, they're arguing. Okay? The disciples versus the, the, the religious leaders of the day, they're, they're arguing. And they often argue. The teachers of the law tried to argue with Jesus all the time. But now they're in a fight with the disciples. And they're arguing so much that a crowd has gathered around them. And then the crowd sees Jesus and they run to him. It, the text says that they're overwhelmed with wonder when they see Jesus, and probably because of what will happen next, um, what the disciples can't do. And they're wondering, they're stunned. With why can't Jesus' disciples cast this demon out? They're actually amazed and they want to know the answers. They all run to Jesus. And the scene is already like kind of highly charged, hinting at unresolved frustration. There's this unresolved tension that's in the subtext of the very beginning of the story. And Jesus says, Okay, what's being discussed? Why are you arguing? Now, that question allows someone from the crowd to set the scene for us. It sets the backstory, it sets the context. It's, he comes in and, and tells us what's actually going on. And the person who sets the scene is the dad, who, um, who, who has a son which we would say, in today's terms, has epilepsy. Only that we find out that this particular form of epilepsy has some demonic overtones and that the spirit is involved in trying to deliberately kill this young boy. And at the end of the story, we know that the, the spirit shrieks and comes out of him. So we, t- we know it's demonic. So it's not, We would today probably call it epilepsy, um, but there were demonic overtones in this. This wasn't just epilepsy. This was demonic. This father tried to bring his son to Jesus, but Jesus wasn't around. He was up on the mountain of transfiguration. So they, he asked Jesus' disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And this is the heart of the story. This line right here is what the story is really all about. And here is where we will find our warning. But I want to keep moving in the story, and it will become clearer in a minute, just a second. But don't forget these words. We went to his, your disciples, but they could not. Okay, that's, that's the point. So Jesus gets really angry at this point. He says, how long will I be with you? You adulterous and sinful generation, full of unbelief. Now, he's used this sort of language before, but it's been usually aimed at the religious leaders or the scribes or the Pharisees. It's not ever been aimed at his disciples. But right here, he's literally aiming this sort of thing, saying, uh, saying this to his disciples. Now, this too is a very important part of the story, a very important question that remains with us. How long will I be with you? It stays with the reader as the narrative unfolds. So hang on to that too. Now, the narrative turns to the boy and the demon. At this point, the demon recognizes Jesus, as demons often do in Mark's story, and throws the boy into a full demonic convulsion. I say demonic because it was specifically a demon influencing, according to the text. It was a demon who was doing this with the boy. And when Jesus says, how long? Very, very interesting. I don't even know what that means yet, but it's interesting that he says, how long? And then he asks, how long? How long has this boy been like this? The dad responds, since he was very, very young. And it's often tried to kill him. Then the dad inserts, but if you can do anything take pity on us and, and help us. If you can do anything, this is almost comical, that the dad would turn to Jesus and say, if you could do anything. This last week, I was talking to a really close friend of mine named Britt. Britt is um, the lead surfboard shaper of Channel Island Surfboard. So he's like the lead shaper. He's like the main guy who shapes all the boards for all the pros. And I was talking to him on the phone, and I said hey, Britt, do you know how to fix a ding in a surfboard? And he laughed. He's like, wait, what? I'm like, wait, wait. I should probably say that differently. Can you fix a ding in my surfboard? Because I have a ding in my surfboard. And I asked him, someone who makes surfboards from scratch, from the beginning, just a blank piece of foam and surfs boards that pro shape on, I asked him, if, does he know how to fix a ding? And as soon as it came out of my mouth, I'm like, what am I saying? This is so stupid. Of course, you can fix a ding. Can you fix the ding? That's what I asked him. I'm like, next time you hear, can you fix it? He goes, Yeah, of course I can fix it, but it's really funny that you asked me if I knew how to fix it. I'm like, That is very funny. <laughs> and it's kind of like this dad here. If you can do anything, if you who created the world and created humanity itself, if you can do anything to fix this, and Jesus even laughs himself, he's like, If I can. If I can, of course I can, and of course I'm willing. But Jesus responds with this very famous line, famous but also very, very misleading if you take it out of context. He says, everything is possible for one who believes. The irony of this is that in context, the only one who believes that God can work this miracle is Jesus. It's Jesus and his nearness to God, his immediacy with God, that brings with it the source of his miraculous authority. Next, the man gives one of the most simple and profound confessions in the entire gospel. I believe, but help my unbelief. I believe, but there's parts of me that still doubt, that still wrestle with unbelief. Now, this could be a whole sermon, and it will be probably in the future, and it has been in the past, but not today. What this confession is saying is that I can really only come to you, Jesus, as I am. No pretense. No faking it. I do believe, but I also doubt. But here I am. All of my belief and all of my doubt. This is the kind of confession that says, I doubt, but I also believe. And it's in that belief that I have that I give myself to you with all of my doubts and honesty in everything that I am. This is like one of the core confessions of of, of us uh, followers of Jesus. I believe, but I also have doubt, but I bring all of that to you in honesty. From here, the story moves really fast. Jesus sees that many people are starting to gather even more so than have already gathered. He quickly rebukes the evil spirit. It violently comes out of the boy. The boy looks like he's dead, but he isn't. Jesus, Jesus picks him up and he's fully restored and they all get up and they walk away. Now, as I said earlier... This story is really about the disciples and their lack of faith. That's what the story is really about. Their dependency upon themselves to make ministry happen. And their unwillingness to depend on God and not in themselves. See, the father in the story recognizes his lack of faith. I believe, and help, but help my unbelief. He recognizes, I, don't, I have some lacks, lack of faith. I have some faith, but I also lack faith. But the disciples don't ever say anything like that. They don't ever confess their unbelief. The father asked Jesus to help him in his failure, but the disciples do not. There is no sign from this narrative that the disciples are turning to Jesus in their need. The father turned to Jesus in his nothingness, and in that Jesus cures his son. The boy is healed, the people are amazed. There is even a resurrection story in the, middle, in the end of this thing. The boy's dead, but Jesus takes him by the hand, and he's not dead. But the climax and the culmination of the story is yet to come. Look at verse 28. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive that thing out? Wait, if you remember earlier, Jesus gave them authority over demons. You remember that story where Jesus says, go out, I'm sending you out two by two, and I give you authority over demons? Actually, earlier than that, Jesus says that he called those, his disciples, those whom he wanted, that they might be with him, that he might send them out to free people from demonic oppression, that they might send out to preach and heal people from demonic activity. So this was the very reason why Jesus called disciples, that they would be with him, that they would be, be sent out and given authority over demons. Why couldn't we cast out the demon? This is literally why we're your disciples. We should be able to do this stuff. Why can't we do this? At the end of the story, the disciples used their privileged association with Jesus to ask him privately why they were not able to drive out the demon. Now, recall for a second, at the very beginning of the story, Jesus' statement aimed at them, the disciples, Jesus' statement on their lack of faith. Recall that Jesus' statement that everything is possible for those who believe Recall the dad's openness to Jesus and his articulation of his confession of doubt mixed with his belief. All of that comes to conclusion here when Jesus says to his disciples, and not so many words, that you, the disciples, are becoming increasingly self-sufficient. You have come to rely on yourself and not me. Remember I told you to remember at the beginning of, Of the narrative when it said, I asked your disciples to drive out the demon, but they could not. I asked your disciples. What are disciples? Who are Jesus' disciples? Jesus' disciples are those who follow Jesus, who are called to be with Jesus in order to be sent out in power. This is Mark chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. The source of all of their power and authority came from Jesus and not from themselves. The point of discipleship is not to wean yourself off of Jesus' power and think somehow the source of your power lies in yourself. That is not the point of discipleship. It's actually opposite, is to fully and more fully and more fully rely on Jesus' power and not your own power. To be with Jesus and so close to Jesus that your authority comes from Him and His authority goes From him and through our lives into the world. So when the disciples are asked, why couldn't we, and the emphasis in the Greek is on we, the disciples, why couldn't we, the disciples, cast out the demon? And the answer is because you never possessed the power to cast out demons. It was always from the power of God. And somehow, in the midst of your success and ministry, you lost sight of that. Do you remember when the disciples were sent out and they came back saying, Jesus, Even the demons were subject to us. Jesus said, no, no, don't rejoice in that. You're misaiming here. Don't Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Rejoice that you have intimacy with God. Rejoice of your nearness to God. Rejoice that the source of your power is your immediacy with God, your nearness to God. That's where you rejoice. Not on the results. Not on your power or your influence or your authority. Rejoice that you're near God and you're going to be near God forever. Rejoice in that. And so... When Jesus, they said, why couldn't we? Because you never had the power. And this is, this is the warning. The warning for us that we must heed is that we cannot become so dependent on ourselves that we take for granted the power of God. So how does Jesus answer the question? Why couldn't we cast out this, this demon? And he answers it in a very peculiar way, in a very amazing way. A simple way, but amazing. He says, this kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. Some manuscripts say fasting. Now, is Jesus talking about how big the demon was? He's like, hey, you've cast out demons, but this was a demon. And you never really encountered a demon like this, so you needed more prayer. You needed to pray this prayer, and you needed to do some, some things with your diet. If you did some things with your diet... Then you would have the power to cast. This demon was bigger than the demons you faced. You faced little baby, like minor demons in the in, in, in the language of screw tape letters, a junior demon. These were senior demons, right? This is what you're dealing with now. You need more. Is it was that what Jesus was saying? That's not what Jesus was saying, by the way, at all. What Jesus was saying was this: What is prayer and fasting all about? Prayer and fasting is all about dependency upon God. That's what it's all about. Why do you fast? So you're not dependent on food. You're dependent on what Jesus said. I have food that you know not of, the very words of God. This is about, I will, I will stop eating so I fully depend on God. Not on food, not on substances, not on things that I foster dependence on. I will foster dependence on God. What is prayer about? I don't have in myself the power to do this. I trust in you, God. Prayer is offering our mind and our heart to God. This is what Nowen says. Henry Nowen says, Prayer is a way of being empty and useless in the presence of God and so of proclaiming our basic belief that all is grace and nothing is simply the result of hard work. Yeah. It's so that we can sit before God and go, God, this is all you're doing. This is all from you and to you, and we are, we are but vessels and channels for your blessing and your power to flow into our neighborhood, into our city, into our world. And so, and this is the warning, this is why this point, and it's a long point, all the other ones won't be this long, but this is the long one. This is the warning. We cannot believe that the fruitfulness or the success of our church will be because of the staff, or because of me or my abilities or that lack thereof, or in the momentum of our church in the past, or the leader's that that we have right now, or the people who haven't yet moved from San Francisco who are still here. Whatever it is, that is not where success or fruitfulness comes as a church. It will be our success and our fruitfulness, I don't like using the word success, fruitfulness, will be in our dependency upon God and God alone. The reason Jesus said to pray and fast is because praying and fasting fosters dependency upon God. You needed to be more dependent. What Jesus was saying was, why couldn't we cast it out? You needed to be more dependent on God and not yourselves. That's why. And that's exactly what we're going to be doing as we move into the new building. Why Why are we doing a week of fasting and prayer? To foster dependency upon God, His voice, His will, His power as we move into this new venture as we move into this new building, as we move into this new ministry, right? There's two people in the room. That's why you only hear two people clapping if you're at home. <laughs> so that, that's the warning. The warning is don't like, oh, reality's got it because it's like, look what all that's, that's been done through. It. No, 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 that's not it at all. That's the warning. It's de- our dependency upon God. And even in that, it's even, even in our dependency upon God, it's still God. And we must be dependent upon him. And we have to realize that and recognize that. And the way that we're going to do that is with our bodies. See, this is the next point. The next point is an invitation. This is not as long, but an invitation. I would, you, it would be really sad if this was just like one of those things you read, and like, oh, that was really, that was a really kind of a, a really good eye-opening sermon. That was good. Okay, we're going to, I'm going to go and and just mm, all the goods from that, whatever. Uh, I liked it. And that was it. That would be so, um, to be you know, crass, that would be stupid of you. It would be really stupid of you. Um, what's the invitation? F- fast and pray. I think that's the invitation from this text. Well, well this kind of only comes out through fasting and prayer. Foster dependency on God, church. I think that would be the probably the simplest thing to, re- to take from this text. How do we as a church foster dependency upon God. It's so simple, I think we can miss it. And and so I I really want to explicitly call this out. This week, we're going to be fostering dependence on God as a congregation, as a church, through fasting and prayer. But I think there's a a reason, I think there's another reason to fast and pray as a church um, in this moment as well. In Scott McKnight's really good book on fasting, simply called Fasting, um, he writes this, Fasting is a person's whole body, natural response to life's sacred moments. What I love about fasting, actually, I, I have to be honest, I don't like fasting. <laughs> when I say what I love about fasting, there's very little I love about fasting. Um, I don't like fasting, okay? Um, just to be, um, to be honest. To be honest. Um, what, I, what I love that fasting does, I should say it that way, is that it, 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 it prays with our body we pray with our body. When we say, God, I depend on you. I depend on you. A lot of times, that's just up here. That could be in, in here in our heart. But when we fast, it gets into our body. When we're kind of weak from not eating lunch or whatever, or, or, or fasting breakfast, and we get weak, we're like, I depend on you right now, God. It prays with our body. And so what we're, this is why Scott Knight says fasting is a person's whole body natural response to sacred moments. Now what he means by that in his book, he argues that fasting in the scriptures typically are prompted by sacred moments in life, moments where there's a thin space between heaven and earth, whether it's a sobering, um, um, really sad, uh, grievous moment when a nation um, comes face to face with their sin and and the kings or the leaders of that nation call a nationwide fast, and they fast to show uh, repentance and reliance upon God. So the whole nation fasts, and this happens over and over again from um, pagan nations to um, to Israel. Like over and over again, this happens all throughout Scripture. There's, and even happened to David when he's caught in sin with Bathsheba. He fasts for his his son that's in that's in Bathsheba's womb. I mean, he fasts. And he, there's, there's, there's this moment of like, I repent, I turn with my whole body with fasting towards you, God. And that, 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 is, that is a moment. And that could be some of our moments. That could be like, hey, this last year and a half, I've lived like a pagan and not like a follower of Jesus. I'm going to fast and repent this week. Because I have not lived in alignment with what I, what I, what, what the way I was living, what I believe, um, what Jesus called me to. I have been so disobedient to the will of God over the last year and a half of this pandemic and is sickening to me and I need to stop right now. That might be you. That might be some people in our church. Might be a lot of people in our church. I don't know. But another moment why um, people fast in the Bible is the, uh, a, a moment filled with expectant and full of hope, like a moment of expectancy, a moment of hopefulness. This is like when Jesus responded to the question um, in Matthew 9. If you have a Bible, just flip over to Matthew 9 really quick. Matthew nine fourteen. 14. Um, Jesus asked... Uh, it's not on the screen, so if you just have your Bible, cool. If not, just listen. In uh, and, and Matthew nine fourteen. 14, uh, it says, John's disciples came and asked Jesus... Um, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but you and your disciples do not fast? So Jesus' disciples didn't fast during his ministry. Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. No, and then he says this parable, which is one of the most confusing parables Jesus teaches. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the wineskins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. So, when Jesus was asked, why don't your disciples fast? He said, because the bridegroom is with them. They're rejoicing. Actually, Jesus' time on earth as his disciples was the time of feasting, not fasting. You feast, because the bridegroom is here. Jesus uh, the Son of God is with us, and so they feast, and they feasted. And they actually broke Sabbath by feasting, all these things, right? So they feasted, 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 feasted. And Jesus said, "When I actually, there's a time when I'll be taken away from them, and then they'll fast again. And we know from Acts that um, up until uh, Jesus' ascension, the, the disciples didn't fast. But after Jesus' ascension to heaven, they did fast. And they fast very regularly. And that fast, the fast that they did afterwards, after Jesus' ascension, was a fast that said with their whole body, your kingdom come, the bridegroom come, come back. Restore us to that moment of feasting again. And Jesus said that will come when Jesus returns and we have the marriage supper. I know I'm getting into all kinds of theology here. And some of you are like following along. And you're like, oh, okay, cool. Some of you guys, are, what are you saying? This is so cryptic and weird. That's why I need to come to church next week because we'll explain all these things to you live and in person. So here's my point. When Jesus said um, the reason why they don't fast was because um, you don't pour um, new wine into old wineskins. You don't, you don't put a, 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 um, a new patch in an old garment. What he was saying was that the way that you fasted is going to be renewed because of Jesus. And the way you did things will now be renewed. You fasted... In the Old Testament, for a certain way and a certain reason, I'm renewing that, and you will fast again, but for a new reason. And the new reason is basically Jesus' prayer, his, the Lord's prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We fast for that kingdom to be restored, for you to come near, for you to draw near, for you to make all things new. We fast in anticipation for this moment. And so, What we're going to be doing as a church is the embodiment of this expectant hope as a church. We're going to say, together with our bodies, your kingdom come. Jesus, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, in San Francisco as it is in heaven. Scott McKnight says in his book, fasting for the church then is a response to two sacred moments, the absence of Jesus and the recognition that his world is not what what God intended it to be body hope responds to both of those by fasting. So we're going to fast in a way of expecting hope for Jesus kingdom to come into our neighborhood, into our city, together with our whole bodies. And I think we face this sacred moment as a church when we're moving into this permanent home that we want to respond with our bodies in fasting. A fast that embodies this prayer that the the kingdom of Christ would come in and through our building, in and through this neighborhood, in and through this city. Now, I could have done this alone, the elders could have done this alone, or the staff could have done this alone, but we really want to invite our entire church into this together. So practically, practically what does this mean? Now, there, this could be several different ways. I'm not going to say you have to fast the entire week, everything, except for water. That's, I mean, if you are called to do that, write me an email. That sounds amazing. I will not be doing that, but maybe you're called to do that. Um, here, here it is. Choose a day to fast. Choose one. Monday through Friday, choose a day. And it could be fasting. If you're more advanced in fasting, if you've been practicing fasting since we started talking about it, you might just fast 24 hours. Fast that day and show up that night to pray. That might be that, that's, that's probably as easy as it gets right there. Other people, if you're like not as advanced in fasting, choose a meal to fast, fast lunch or fast breakfast that day, and then show up that night to pray. Um... However you, or you can fast three days of, of the week, or two days, whenever you're, if you're, I'm traveling, I'm traveling at the end of the week, I'll be at the beginning of the week, fast those times. Whatever it is, fast with us. And I think this is kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure. We'll be here every night breaking our fast with communion and prayer um, with different themes throughout the night of things that we're praying for. And it should be no longer than an hour, it could be shorter than that, from 6 to no, lo- no more than 7 p.m. Um, whatever you fast, the money that you would have spent on food, give it to the poor, okay? Give it to the poor. Buy someone else a meal. Um, donate it to a food bank. Donate it to, um, to the poor. Um, I think we kind of get it wrong where we fast uh, and we just keep from eating until we can eat really good meal. Um, and like, I'm like, I'm tonight I'm going to Nopolito because I fasted all day. I'm going to spend hundred dollars on a meal. Like, that's just like a wrong way to fast, right? Um, uh, give your money to the poor. The money that you would have saved from fasting, give it to the poor. Now, um, if you want to come every single night, you can come every night. You can come with your community. Like, choose your own adventure. We'll be here every night. We kind of are asking you to at least choose one day that you're doing this with us. If you don't live in San Francisco, just choose a night to do that with us and know we're praying at, at from 6 to 7. Lastly, a question. Let's end here. Jesus asked this question at the very beginning. Verse 19, You unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? I told you that this question remains with the reader throughout the narrative. It's a rhetorical question. Jesus is not looking for them or us to answer the question because he will answer it with his actions. How long will he stay? How long will Jesus put up with us? The answer is, he's still here. He's still putting up with us. He's putting up with all of our failings and all of our mistakes. Yesterday, um, for Sabbath, we got on the train by our house, the Muni train, and took it to Castro and got off at the Castro stop and just walked up and down Castro and had ice cream with Junie and Ashley and and uh, there was this interesting scene getting off Castro um, and Market, and then one block up is 17th or 16th? I forget. Whatever. Castro and one block up. Um, and there were evangelists there in the corner with T-shirts and signs and yelling, and a couple of them were yelling very meanly, like angry. Like, not like John the Baptist. I don't think John the Baptist was that angry, but like that sort of fire like in brimstone sort of thing. And then, of course, you're in the Castro, you're just kind of asking for a fight, right, at that point. And so there was literal fights. There was literal, like, um, fists being thrown. And, um, and then there was counter sort of protests. And it was we, were, we, we got kind of caught in a, pretty, a middle of a pretty crazy scene where um, you have evangelists yelling, repent, you're going to hell. And then you had people making signs showing up and saying... Um, uh, Pro Satan or whatever like they were, and they were just yelling back and forth and being antagonistic to both sides and, and um, I picked up juniper, my daughter, two, two and a half year old daughter, and I just said to her um, you 're safe it 's okay it 's okay you 're safe. Some people um, are misguided, and I even said some things to a couple of them that were being evangelistic there i 'm like, i think you're doing this all wrong, and you shouldn 't be here, and this is bad, and i 'm a pastor, and I have a church down the street, and you shouldn 't be here and um, and, um, and I, so I, I pick up Junie. I'm like, it, you're safe. It's okay. Some people are misguided. Some people are really uh, traumatized by this sort of thing. And some people are genuinely demon possessed. I mean, she, she doesn't know what that means yet. So, but I wanted to make sure that she understood that that actually is a thing. And, um, and you know, I, I'm very far from feeling or thinking like Jesus all the time. I'm very far from that. But at that moment, I understood these words of Christ, how long will you put up with us? This is insane. You have people yelling in the name of Jesus. You have other people counter-protesting, literally throwing fists at the other person. Um, And dogs are barking, and people are, it is crazy. How long will you put up with us? See, we're supposed to see in this story our world in miniature. We're supposed to see all the chaos of our world in this story, The gospel writers, Mark and Matthew and the others, would use stories like this and texts like this to preach the whole basic gospel. They saw in these stories miniature pictures of our world in which we live. It's chaos. It's chaos. Jesus comes down literally from the Mount of Transfiguration into chaos. People are arguing and fighting. It's evil. There's someone possessed by a demon. There's tension. There's a lack of ability from spiritual leaders to do anything about it. And the way Christ comes right into the middle of it. He doesn't go around it. He goes right into the middle of it. He steps right into the mess and brings freedom and healing. For all the self-care and self-love and self-esteem things we do in our, to ourselves and our culture, which is it's everywhere, deep down, we all know we're really, really messed up. All of us are. I am, you are. God knows how messed up we are, too. And I love Jesus' honesty. How long can I withstand your faithlessness, your brokenness? And yet he remains. He draws near to our mess, our brokenness. As you follow the narrative in Mark, he makes his way from this moment right to Jerusalem and right to the cross. I think this gives our prayers weight. This gives our dependence confidence that when we depend on God, we don't depend on someone who is just like, Angry at us and wants to annihilate us and wipe us out, but someone who, and honestly gets really frustrated with our faithlessness and our sin, but steps right into our mess anyways and brings healing. We're dependent on a God like that. We depend on a God who cares more deeply about our city and our neighborhood than we can ever possibly care about it and carries within himself the actual cure for it. So, this is exactly what we're stepping into this week, church, as a church. We're stepping into this moment, repentant if need be. If we don't, maybe if we don't care about this thing, like oh yeah, church is going to start next week. and I don't really care. Maybe we need to repent just for just lacking the care and the sacredness of this moment. Maybe we need to turn with our whole bodies, with fasting and prayer, and seek God together. Because if God, if 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 the dreams and the prophecies that have that have been shared um, over the last kind of several years about a, a building for our church, if they're If they're true, the only way they will come to pass, I believe, is we have to be expectant and ready for them. We have to make ourselves, posture ourselves to where we're ready for what God wants to pour out. Would you stand with me and let's pray? Let's open our hands in a posture of dependence on God. If you're at home, you can do the same thing. If you can, just stand or kneel with your hands um, open. Lord, we see you coming down from this mountain of transfiguration into our mess. We see you coming down from heaven to earth into our chaos. And you said, uh, it says in in John 3.16, you didn't come to condemn the world but to save it. You'll complain, and you had just a a few times in Scripture that kind of shock us sometimes. I don't know if complaining is the right word, but you definitely are honest with how hard it is as, a, as, as flesh, as Jesus, to put up with our madness. But you still remain. You're still there, loving us, healing our brokenness, God. So, in parts that we need to repent, may we repent now. Some of us, just this week, of just fasting and in prayer, repenting with even a, maybe a heaviness in our own soul, carrying that to you, saying, God, we're sorry for our sin and our disobedience, for others of us carrying the expectation of the hope that that your kingdom come, your will be done. Lord, our our world and even the position of this very building that we're in right now is set in in just a very chaotic corner, but a very important corner, Lord. I pray that we'd be ready to whatever you want to pour out. Pour out your spirit, God. Make us expectant and ready for what you're going to do. Give us a sobriety about us, Lord, that wants to, to lay, lay claim to the sacredness of the moment. I pray that we would all be able to say that we were a part of this week through, um, maybe if you don't live in the city, through, through distance, or if we do live in the city and in, in our presence, that we were a part uh, of this dependence, collective dependence and fasting upon God. We lean on you and trust in you. And for any of of us, Lord, that need healing right now, I pray that we would confess that, Lord, and say that to you. We need healing, Lord, heal us. For those of us that need salvation, we would turn to you, Lord, to save us. Do it now among us as we respond to you in worship. In Jesus' name, amen.